This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. It is July of 2018, and reports are definitely coming in that the Syrian and Russian military offensive is sweeping southward and quickly. There was a large contingent of the Syrian White Helmets, the Syrian Civil Defense Forces, is their formal name, are absolutely being targeted. We are getting that information from Operation Mayday. And the puzzle is more complicated by the location. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. The Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon. Welcome to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast today, Erin. We are just thrilled to welcome you for this conversation. To our listeners, Erin works as a public policy manager for strategic response policy at Meta, formerly Facebook. And prior to her move to the corporate world, she was a foreign service officer, serving as a special assistant to the deputy secretary of state. So we're going to talk a bit more about your time in the Foreign Service a bit later in the podcast, but I'd like to start the conversation with getting to know a little bit more about your story. Why why did you get involved in international affairs? What drew you to this field? Sure. Thank you for having me. Hi, Kathleen, and happy Pride to everyone listening. So my start in international affairs is pretty easy to pinpoint, and it's uh, really 9-11. It was being, you know, a 17-year-old kid out in the West Coast, starting that morning off, listening to it on the radio. There, there was a little bit of that December 7, 1941 feel to this attack going on in our country. But by about 10 o'clock, 10.30 on the West Coast, watching the towers come down, I remember distinctly to this day being at my locker, changing classes and going, promising myself to nobody but me, I will work in any capacity to make sure this never happens again. From that moment, right, I, oh my gosh, I need to get to the Middle East. I want to learn Arabic. What is Islam? And not from a place of xenophobia, racism, and all that, but really to try to understand why there would be 19 folks who would undertake this attack and in this way, and to really try to understand and and make sure I was forever part of the solution. So that is the day I wanted to be in international affairs by hook or by crook and in any and all capacities. So let's talk about the decision that you want to get into today. Sure. It's about a decision to rescue the white helmets in Syria. Could you please help our listeners understand who are the white helmets? What was this issue going on at the time? Sure. The white helmets are a heroic, truly heroic group of Syrian civil defense folks. And by civil defense folks, this is what their job description is. These are people, men and women, who will, after a Russian or Syrian airstrike on a school, on an apartment building, after chemical weapons attacks, they're the ones who dive into the rubble and save their neighbors. And this was, and still is, they are still active in Syria right now to this day. They still receive funding from, from the United States and other, you know, Western European governments. These are people who the United States government and taxpayer dollars have trained since 
20, 14, 15, you know, for many, many years. They are plain and simple heroes whom we have allied with to help save civilian lives inside Syria. These were not some special forces. This was not a element of the Republican Guard with training. These were honest to goodness concerned citizens who were looking out for their own in their own neighborhoods on a local level and got organized. They were nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize, you know, to continue to bulk up their bona fides. And for those interested in more, uh, there's even a Netflix documentary about the type of heroism that this organization displays. Mm -hmm. So is it 2018 that they are under threat? Indeed. I would say they've always been under threat by the Syrian and Russian forces for some time at this point, mm -hmm. for many years of the war, because of what they do, because they try to, you know, go, again, go into the rubble. They will help document crimes against humanity and other atrocities. But by 2018, I'm in New York at the U.S. Mission to the U.N. and I'm the lead there for Syria. And at this phase in the conflict, the Syrian government was trying very much, you know, very hard to consolidate military power on the battlefield. But in 2018, it was very much in the interest of the Syrian government and its Russian sponsors to try to hunt down these folks because they would have the ability to document war crimes and also continue to, to save uh, additional civilian lives. So you become concerned about the situation increasing while you're in New York. And you raised this issue, but there was resistance to doing anything about it at the time? Is that right? There was definitely resistance inside the State Department to my doing it and to the U.S. government. Let me depersonalize. To the U.S. government in, in some ways. Here's how the story started. It is July of 2018. And reports are definitely coming in that the Syrian and Russian military offensive is sweeping southward and quickly. Yep. There was a large contingent of the Syrian White Helmets, the Syrian Civil Defense Forces, that's their formal name, are absolutely being targeted. We are getting that information. We received that information from Operation Mayday, which was a British organization, NGO, who helps facilitate the training and funding of white helmets with civil defense equipment, hard hats, etc. The puzzle is more complicated by the location. These Syrian white helmets and their families are being pushed southward toward the Jordanian border. And this is where the puzzle gets really heartbreaking and I get involved and by extension, the U.S. government gets involved. Mayday, the White Helmets, NGO, the Brits and the U.N. are also in this little cabal at this point. And it's all staff level, by the way, at this point. Realize we should probably undertake a rescue mission to try to get these people out. Question is, how do we do that when the Jordanian government had locked its doors? Now, before people go, oh, damn, the Jordanian government. In fairness to the Jordanian government, they have absorbed quite a bit, many millions of Syrian refugees since the war began in 2011. And this is 2018. And the Jordanian government's line was, we are full. We will not just open the gates to these people and their families we are full. And there's a political you know, rationale behind the Jordanians keeping that door locked. The Israeli government also, you know, if you look at the geography, where are the white helmets going? Where could we possibly get them out? Then there's Israel. You've got the Golan Heights and disputed territory, but ultimately, right, the Israelis perhaps could open their door. They're an assurance. No, thank you. What we were able to glean, and by we now, it's me in New York, 
my British counterpart, Mark Power, a senior UN official working on Syria, who is in New York and also in the region. And the Brits are talking with Mayday on the ground. They have the comms. They are the ones talking to the White Helmets. What we figure might have to happen because of the Jordanians' position of we will not let these folks in is what we have to do is not only just facilitate a rescue mission, something, again, kind of a more military piece. We are going to have to do diplomacy to find, before we can initiate, before anybody can open up the borders, we have to negotiate and find a place, a country, for these people to go. That is where I would say I entered the story. And while I was you know, definitely helping and around and, and sharing information and kind of facilitating general awareness inside the U.S. government from the New York vantage point about one, the urgency of the situation the White Helmets were in, what certain governments were thinking about what their options were, it became very clear very quickly that we couldn't save anybody's life unless we started to negotiate. And when I say negotiate, I'm using the diplomatic, literally go tin cupping. I was asking European governments, pounding the pavements of New York, you know, doing, <laughs> running around Midtown East, badgering, begging, pleading, my counterparts from the Netherlands, from Canada, from the UK, France, Germany. How many families can you take? The State Department wasn't very receptive to this idea of a rescue mission. It becomes a college intro to philosophy question, kind of the, the Plato Gyges ring. Well, if a train's coming down the tracks, you know, how many lives do you save? Do you save one? Do you save all? And I understood, but we had an opportunity, in my view, we had a responsibility. And heck, I mean, yeah, I mean, I agreed with those views that we should be doing more to save all of the civilian lives. And I know many people, everybody at the State Department thought that, but it didn't mean that we shied away from this opportunity. And we had two weeks to put it together. My advocating, negotiating, pressing European, uh, Canadians also stepped up, convening meetings, again, at the staff level, at the working level. Typically, this diplomacy, this type of high stakes, lives on the line stuff isn't always done at the junior genius and at the working level. Friends, it is not typically normal to see folks in their mid to mid senior career levels orchestrating this type of mission and, and at scale. Hmm. It is not normal. Okay. So the rescue effort is successful. You managed to get these white helmets repatriated to a number of different countries. Right. And you were awarded the highest honor that the State Department bestows for this work. That's right. The rescue mission overall took two weeks. Ultimately, by the time that people crossed, and that's a good story, there's probably a, if there's a gifted screenwriter, we can, we can work on it. We got last, I was told, 423 people across the Israeli border on a moonless night from the Israeli border. So the IDF go open the gates, get these folks out. I'm I was told later that there were two women in the group who were pregnant. One woman goes into labor while the rescue mission is going on. The uh, Israelis uh, facilitate. They put these 400 some people in buses, transfer them down uh, to Jordan uh, where they remain, which was essentially the rescue operation planning that we had negotiated by the end of this two week period. But we couldn't unlock the gates to Israel or Jordan until governments, again, huge, huge kudos to the Canadians, the Germans, the Netherlands, the UK in particular, 
because if they had not made commitments to the United States government and collectively to ourselves, we will take 50 families, you will take the other 50. We were literally bargaining like a carnival barker of how can we find places for these folks, the white helmets. That was what unlocked the gates to Israel and Jordan. On average, the white helmets were in Jordan for about four months and then repatriated throughout Western Europe to the you know respective governments who had cleared them. Security checks had to be done on these families. Uh, that was also uh, ate up a lot of time in the rescue efforts because of the domestic legitimate security concerns. But we all knew all these governments have worked with the White Helmets for years. So we sort of knew who these people were. They were on our side. They're begging for our help. But the domestic politics, particularly in Europe and in the U.S. at the time, was a real handicap to this negotiation effort. So there are 423 people by last count. The the other woman who was pregnant gave birth after. 423 people are alive and well, Syrians who are alive and well today, thanks to this really truly multilateral effort. It was the U.S. and the Brits and the U.N. and many of our NATO allies really coming together at a lower level within our governments to make big change, to put the pressure up instead of up on our leaders. Yeah. It's amazing uh, what can happen at that action officer level, right? It's it- We can save lives and do great things. And I hadn't always seen that in my career. Now, I believed it in my heart, And I had seen it happen right from history. This opportunity to assist the evacuation of the White Helmets was not only just a huge object lesson for any bureaucrat, this is what one person or in a small team of people can do, regardless of your job title. You can save lives and you should if you've got the shot. Taking a step back, you know, a Smart Women, Smart Power podcast, do you think that your gender impacted this decision that you took or its outcome? And if not, why not? I think yes and no. Some of that, for those listening, I'm gay. And I think just my own identity as a queer woman, a queer woman of color, my identity, I think is just different, right? And people are like, yeah, obviously, is it, different. I experience being a woman in the workplace, a woman in foreign affairs, a woman in the State Department differently because of how I present words I would use, like somewhat androgynous. I got a deep voice, like whatever. I have some like masculine characteristics, but I've got long hair and, you know, would wear, you know, will wear dresses, you know, it's, oh, I'm, I don't know. I'm an enigma. Anyway. And I've gotten this feedback over the course of my career, right? That I'm not always subject to the, to the shenanigans, technical term. I'm not always subject to the shenanigans that a lot of women get, particularly who are, who will wear the dresses. Present more feminine? Exactly. Thank you for Mm -hmm. presenting as feminine and and who get discounted on the basis of that. I'll come back to that point. But the first way I'd answer the question, Kathleen, is yes, I think my gender had a bit to do with some of the difficulty and resistance inside the State Department. Largely, I have to say, that was in the large part from my vantage point of why the State Department did not get involved to a great extent was a chilling effect from kind of the White House on down and a feeling of stagnation and not wanting to step outside the box of the administration's policies. My career in the State Department in terms of gender, particularly someone who spent a lot of time in the Middle East and, and working, when not in the Middle East, working uh, working on Middle East issues, I would often get the question, oh my God, you're a woman, oh, and you're gay, but forget the gay thing for a moment. You're a woman, you lived in Syria and all these other places, what's that like? Do they hate you? And I said, my gender mixed with my American diplomatic credentials in my experience, was it always provided this way to navigate around and navigate through 
what many would consider to be typical gender norms within that region about uh, women shouldn't be talking or, or uh, again, the, whatever the stereotypes are. It's not about me, but it was actually always showed me the power of the American example and the respect that many countries, many people had for, wow, they even let a woman do this job. Like, okay, well, there's a woman talking to me. She's from the American government. I better listen. That element of gender was absolutely present throughout not just the decision-making here, but ultimately the outcome of there's this American diplomat. I never got the sense that anyone that I was working with in the UN or the British mission or the Arab allies that I was talking with, no one discounted my gender. I do wonder if that decision would have been different and how many more people, I should say it this way, I wonder how many more people would have rallied to help I definitely led the charge. I'll say that. I wasn't alone. <laughs> By the end of it, it did require other American officials getting involved and other, other American diplomats. So your gender didn't negatively impact your interactions with foreign governments or officials. But in your view, it could have had a negative impact on the seriousness with which you were taken at the State Department. I, I'm nodding at that. It may not be that acute. In sure. The State Department. Sure. I do want to be fair about that. This is really squishy, hard yeah. to sort of pin down stuff. I didn't get a lot of signals of you're a woman, we're not listening to you. In fact, it was really the opposite, particularly in this point in both the decision I was part of with this rescue mission. I'd have to say from a smart women, smart power perspective, objectively, like I was at the height of my career in terms of I owned this file, I knew it inside and out. People respected me, even senior Trump officials <laughs> and who knew who I was and what I was about, but knew that I was there to do a job, advise them well for outcomes for the American people and for Syrians who needed our help. I've rarely had instances at the State Department where my gender was an issue in decision making or my growth. It's the only workplace to date, I've only had two, where I've been sexually harassed and assaulted at good old State Department. You know, so gender has come up in that career. But in this decision point, Kathleen, gender was not a factor overall in the outcome of saving 400 something lives, earning the State Department's highest award, despite the department's reticence. They, everyone liked the outcome. And I think I have to, I think, be fair and, and generous of heart to colleagues who weren't supportive initially. I think everybody in the U.S. government, every American was supportive of doing anything and everything we could to help save those folks. I was really proud to be recognized in the way that I was ultimately by Secretary Pompeo and, and other colleagues. So there's that element. To wrap up our conversation, we're releasing this podcast towards the end of Pride Month, and you've mentioned that you are a queer woman in the space. And I wanted to know if you have any advice for listeners who are part of the LGBTQIA plus community that are pursuing or seeking a career in national security, or even folks that are in the business right now, any advice you'd have for them about operating in this space from that perspective? We're at a moment just a few weeks ago at Pride celebrations in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We had, in my view, a domestic terrorist plot that was thankfully un unraveled by local police officials in Idaho. Members of the Patriot Front were armed and ready to harm members of the community who were celebrating. I start on that darker note because I think you got to be very clear-eyed. Maybe it's the realpolitik in, in all of us, <laughs> or at least in me, of where we are in this moment of pride in, in America and how that cascades out in the world. I hope that those listening who are in the business of international affairs, whether that's the State Department or USAID or the military, wherever 
you're serving, that you remain proud of who you are, particularly for those who are in government. I need you all on the inside to keep pushing and breaking the bureaucratic China and the bureaucratic processes that keep other queer people from serving and also serving longer. One of the reasons I did leave on the personal side of the ledger was I'm a gay woman and that's not easy. It's not easy to create a family or have a family follow you around, whether you're, you're gay or straight. That, that's always a hard endeavor. But particularly as a, as a queer woman, that proved pretty hard. I was, I was trying to date. I was trying to have had that family. I was trying to do that uh, unsuccessfully, I'll admit. But we need the bureaucracies. We need the national security infrastructure to be far more welcoming to a lot of different groups. Since it's pride, we'll focus on the queers. There's still a lot of red tape to cut in terms of making our foreign service, our national security and defense infrastructure, a place where everybody can work, work safely, and have a fulsome career that's not going to be limited to, well, this country doesn't support my existence, let alone my rights or recognize my marriage, so I can't go there. And, and how can the State Department and other government agencies who have this problem, how can they help the professional advancement? Because oftentimes people get left behind. And I know many a queer person uh, and women who have left because they feel that they hit a wall. They can't bring their families with them to continue to serve this country. We can't keep passing the buck on, well, the host country just isn't welcoming. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing your story with us, Erin. Incredibly moving. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you for ending our conversation on an important call to action. So happy Pride Month, everybody. Thank you so much, Erin, and looking forward to many more conversations with you. I can't wait. And I'm so grateful to be with you, Kathleen. It really means a lot to be here today and share the story. Awesome. Thanks Thank for you. your time. Bye. Happy Pride. Happy Pride. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. The Smart Women Smart Power podcast is supported by Raytheon.